Good morning, everybody. I'd like to ask you please to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4, starting today in verse 1. Let me ask you a question to start off this morning. Is God on your side? Do you think that God is on your side? This question is often at the center of attention when nations go to war. And what often occurs is that every side believes that God, of course, is on their side. If you go back in our own nation's history, just back to the Civil War era, and you listen to the music, just read the lyrics of the songs that they would sing around the campfires in both the North and the South. In both cases, they were singing convinced that God was on their side. The great theologian, Bob Dylan, <laughs> highlighted this phenomenon in a song called With God on Our Side all the way back in 1964 when he said, the First World War, boys, it came and it went. The reason for fighting I never did get, but I learned to accept it and accept it with pride, for you don't count the dead when God's on your side. And the Second World War came to an end, and we forgave the Germans, and then we were friends. Though they murdered six million in the ovens they fried, the Germans now too have God on their side. Did you realize, though, that during the Second World War, the Germans already believed that God was on their side? Do you know that the Nazi fighters claimed that God was going to be the one to give them victory? I'd like to show you an image, the picture. This is a belt buckle that was given by Adolf Hitler himself to all of the SS soldiers. He delivered them to them. You'll notice it says, Gott mit uns, if you don't speak German, that says, God is with us. And they wore these belt buckles proudly as they snuffed out the life of person after person after person who was made in the image of God. And they did so believing that God was on their side. Is God on your side? Please follow along as I begin reading in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. This is God's perfect and inspired word. It says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp... All Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews 
as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the Lord God, the Lord, I'm sorry, the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you and come before your word, we ask, Lord, that this would be no mere practice of religious activity, but this would be a humbling of our own hearts before you as we trust you, as we follow you, as we live for you. And we ask, Father God, that through this passage you would reveal much about yourself and your son, Jesus Christ, to us today so that we might love him and live for him more. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our approach to the passage this morning is very simply going to be to walk through each verse And as we go, we're going to do our best to get an understanding of what's happening here. And then towards the end, we're going to shift into taking this chapter and applying it to our lives with a number of targeted application points. As we begin, I want you to let your eyes drift a little bit up into the end of chapter 3. Just look there at the last verse of chapter 3 where it says, And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Now into chapter 4, verse 1, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. When the Lord first appeared to Samuel, we know that he was just a boy. We don't know how old. Some people believe he was quite young. If you look through a children's Bible, it will indicate he was roughly five years old. I think that he was probably a little older than that. According to Hebrew tradition, he was 12 at the time. We don't know exactly how old, but definitely not old enough yet to depart and live on his own. He was still operating like a child servant for Eli. It appears as though there is a little bit of a time lapse, however, before we get to the beginning of chapter 4. All we know for sure is that after the time that Samuel was woken by the Lord from sleep, the Lord once again appeared to him at some later time in Shiloh. But let's think through this verse very carefully. It says that the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Well, how did it get there? What was the message that God gave Samuel to give to Israel? This is the message that the Lord gave in the previous chapter, if you'll remember. It said, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And on that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declared to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or by offering forever. So we know a few things here. First, we know that this message was intended to go out to all of the people of Israel. This was not just an in-house form of rebuke or correction. It was God's way of publicly rebuking the family line of Eli prior to the eventual judgment so that everyone would know this was not an accident. This was God's intentional act of judgment. Secondly, we know that Samuel probably left Shiloh in order to tell this message to the people. Well, how do we know that? We know that because, first of all, he's going to disappear from the book of 1 Samuel for quite a while. He doesn't show back up until chapter 7, verse 3. And that might not sound like a long way away for those who are following along in the passage. You're like, okay, this is chapter 4, verse 1, 7, verse 3. That doesn't seem very long. But in a book that Samuel shows up in 111 times, 
This is a big chunk of time to consider him not at all. In fact, this is the longest absence of Samuel in the entire book, except one, which is when David is on the run from Saul and the camera lens lens shifts away from Israel entirely and follows David into the wilderness while he hides from the king. It only makes sense that Samuel would eventually depart from the house of Eli. Remember, the Lord has promised to wipe them out. But it also makes sense because I cannot imagine Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, being comfortable or happy with their pseudo-adopted little brother preaching judgment and damnation against their family line. So Samuel's prophetic ministry began as he went out into the land and he caused the ears of everyone to tingle with the promise that God was eventually going to wipe out Eli and his family line. Now let's consider the rest of verse 1. It says, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. This is the first time we're encountering the Philistines in the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to encounter them many times. In your Bible, there are multiple occasions where we hear about the Philistines going all the way back to Genesis. However, the people that we are meeting here are not to be confused with the people that were there in Genesis, for example, around Abraham or Isaac. If you'll remember, Isaac, the son of Abraham, gave his wife Rebekah to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, and lied and said that Rebekah was his sister. Now, the Philistines that we read about there in Genesis, those are totally different than the ones that had come into the land at this time. Philistines, meaning they live in that area. So the Philistines that we find in 1 Samuel had come into the land after the Israelites had been there in the book of Joshua. They had a sea invasion that took place sometime during the early stages of the book of Judges. And they came as a conquering nation, from probably from Crete, that's what most most scholars believe, from the island of Crete, just south of Greece, and they probably were inhabiting many of those surrounding Greek islands in the Aegean Sea. And then they brought with them their culture and their gods from the Minoan culture into the land of Israel. Long before there were modern borders of any kind, these people spread their civilization across the Mediterranean basin, and this particular sect landed in coastal Israel, and what they did was they conquered and lived in five cities— They were known as an expansionist people who were dead set on conquering big cities and making them their own because they were easy to defend. If you've been following the news at all, then you've probably heard a great deal about these places in recent days because one of the five cities of the Philistines is the city of Gaza. And all five of the Palestinians, of the Philistine cities that we see in this chapter are in fact now what we call the Gaza Strip. In fact, the word Philistine is where we get the word Palestine. Even though there's absolutely no biological lineage between the ancient Philistines and the modern Palestinians, that's where we get the term. The Philistine people were known to be a militaristic society. They would often raid other civilization. They were like an ancient form of Mediterranean Vikings. And they were also far more technologically advanced than the Israelites. If you want to do it in terms of a tech tree, you could describe it in terms of the Philistines entering into the Iron Age about two centuries before the Jews, which means they had far superior weapons and the Israelites were at a disadvantage militarily nonstop. And the Lord used the Philistines on many occasions to be a way to judge the Israelites for their disobedience and idolatry. And they will be the primary external enemies of Israel throughout the remainder of the book. Let's continue with verse 1. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, 
And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. War is an awful thing, and war is never a small thing. It absolutely is destructive to societies. When 4,000 men are killed, all of their families and all of their friends are changed forever. Consider that September 11th, those terrible attacks that took place here on American soil, when those two towers were hit and fell and 3,000 people died, 3,000. At the time, I was living in Chanute, Kansas, far away from New York, in a nation with far more people than Israel. And yet, almost everyone knew someone who was personally affected by the fall of those two towers. Even in a place far away, in what you call often here in New York, flyover land, even there, we were clearly affected by the fact that there were attacks and 3,000 people out of 350 million died. Consider the fact this is a small nation, a nation of probably around 800,000 to a million people, and of them, 4,000 men were killed. War is never a small thing. Verse 3, And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Notice, after this defeat, all of the soldiers revert back to a military encampment. They went back to the place where they were going to regroup and prepare to fight again. But they asked the exactly right question. Notice the elders of the Israelites knew that the only reason they would lose a battle like this was if the Lord had turned against them. And as the unique people of God of the Old Covenant... They had been brought into a relationship with the Lord himself. The people were promised that God would protect them and preserve them from their enemies. No other nation in the history of the world, including our own, has ever been promised these protections. However, these protections from God had stipulations. God never gave a blanket statement that he would protect them regardless of their actions. He promised that as long as they kept the covenant, he would guard them and safeguard them. We find these promises in Deuteronomy 28. Here's how the section on covenant blessings begins. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set high above you, high above the nations of the earth. Notice that this statement begins with the words, if. It is an if-then statement. Jump down to verse 7, and it says, The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake, and he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Conditional. But on the other hand, God promised the opposite if they disobeyed. I'm going to jump down to verse 15, and we see some covenant curses. He says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And the military aspects of those curses start in verse 25, where he says, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and your dead bodies shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. I hope you see what this means. 
It means that the people of Israel should have known the answer to their own question. When they asked, why has God defeated us? They should have looked at the state of their society and their culture and immediately gone into nationwide repentance. They should have called out to the Lord. And this was not the first time that they had been attacked and defeated by national enemies. And every time prior to this, they eventually got to the proper response. Judges 3, they were defeated by the king of Mesopotamia. And they cried out to the Lord and they repented. And the Lord saved them. In Judges 4, they were defeated by Sisera and the Canaanite armies. But they called out in repentance and God saved them. In Judges 6, it says that they were brought low by the people of Midian, and they repented, and God saved them. When we get to Judges chapter 10, they were defeated by the Ammonites on one side and the Philistines on the other. That's the first time we see these Philistines come into play. And we read in verse 10 of chapter 10, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Malachites and the, Moabites and the Moanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Clearly we see that he has done this. Verse 13, You have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. In other words, at this time, they were speaking to God out of one side of their mouth, and they were still worshiping these idols with the other. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you only. Please deliver us this day. And you know what? The Lord did. He raised up for them Jephthah to fight off the Ammonites on one side and Samson to fight off the Philistines on the other. But remember... The very first verse of Samuel reminds us that this book of Samuel takes place during the time of the judges. Samson's defeat of the Philistines was in the rearview mirror, but not that far from the book of 1 Samuel. It was probably well within living memory of some of the people in Israel. And they know that God has fought for them. They know that he has led them in victory and that there is always a judge that is raised up to perform an act of judgment upon the enemies of Israel. And they should have known that this will only occur when you turn and repent, and then God will show you mercy. But even though they were asking the right questions, they come up with the wrong answer. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, they said, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Let me read that again and just see how that sounds in your ears. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people went to Shiloh, and they brought the Ark from there, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. I'm sure that many people in the room have seen the movie Indiana Jones, The Raiders of the Lost Ark, in that movie, one of the archaeologists says, quote, The Bible speaks of the ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. An army which carries the ark before it itself is, and then he pauses for effect, invincible. Any army that has this ark leading it is invincible. But nothing could be further than the truth. Obviously, Hollywood gets it wrong again. The ark of the covenant never did any of those things. But God did those things. 
And the people of Israel began to think of the box where God's presence would occasionally dwell as a way to force God's hand to fight for them. I think Dale Ralph Davis gets it really, nails it right on the head when he says, here was a pressure tactic, a way of, if you will, pardon the expression, twisting God's arm. That is not faith, but superstition. It is what I call rabbit foot theology. When we, whether Israelites or Christians, operate this way, our concern is not to seek God, but to control him. Not to submit to God, but to use him. So we prefer religious magic to spiritual holiness. We are interested in success, not repentance. That is a perfect description of what is going on at the highest level of Israel in this chapter. Remember, this was a decision made by the elders that were in that camp. The elders of the people came up with a scheme. So... They go and they get Hophni and Phinehas on board. We don't know what these two brothers thought about the whole endeavor. They certainly seemed to believe that God existed, but they had always just used him as a way for self-advancement and self-gratification. So now, perhaps they were doing the same thing. If they carried the ark to the battlefield, maybe they thought that they would be viewed as the ones who saved the nations. The nation, look, hey, those guys are the heroes. They're the ones carrying the box that protects us. And they would become great in the eyes of the people. But it was not just Hophni and Phinehas. It was not just the elders of the people that were operating out of a mode of superstition here. Verse 5. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. The people assumed that the presence of the Ark must have meant that God was with them and that God would fight for them. Look, God is on our side. They assumed that the Philistines would fall before them like the walls of Jericho. The people's understanding of God was just about as warped and twisted as Steven Spielberg or George Lucas who made the Raiders of the Lost Ark. They thought, if we can just put this box in front of us, we will have no chance but to be, choice but to be victorious. We will be invincible. Verse 6, And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Gods are to, supposed to stay in the temple. Maybe at most they stay in the sky and they fight for us from the heavens, but they do not come down here and play chess amongst men. No, that is not normal. That is, that is unusual. Now they were filled with fear. So they said, Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. And they were absolutely correct. The God of the Israelites did do those things. And God promised the Israelites the reason that he was doing these things was so that his name would be glorified and that his name would go before them as a testimony of his power when they entered into the land. And now that they have entered the land, hundreds of years later, people still remember what God did to the Egyptians. How, does, who do, how do they respond? Verse 9, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. The Philistines, well, they were viewing the holy box just like the Israelites. They viewed the box itself as God, or in their words, God's. As pagans who were used to worshiping inanimate objects, it made total sense to them that some kind of a created object like this would actually be or house a divine being. But instead of causing them to run in fear, notice that it caused them to actually bolster their strength 
and fight even harder so that they would not be enslaved. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his own home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now the remainder of our time is going to be focusing on applying this passage to our lives by carefully noting six truths about God and seeing how those things are on display in this chapter and then seeing what they mean for us today. First, God saves everyone who comes to him in humility. The people of Israel knew the right question to ask. Why is God doing this to us? But in their sin, they refused to come forward in repentance as they should have. Instead of repenting, they took matters into their own hands, and if they would have simply turned their hearts to the Lord in humility and acknowledged that he had done a good thing for them and made covenant with them, and they spurned his love, they rejected him and made a mockery of him with false worship, if they would have only done that, the Lord would have fought in their defense as he had every other time. Earlier, we examined multiple occasions in the book of Joshua where that exact thing happened, and the Lord saved the Israelites from the oppressive attacks of their enemies. Later, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, that principle is clearly stated by the Lord when he says, If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. There are many people who have turned church and church attendance into exactly what the Israelites are doing here. They think that because they walk into a church building on at least a semi-regular basis, then God is on their side. For some people, they think that the generosity that they have or philanthropy that they show, that's the answer. God must be on my side because I'm a gregarious in my, gregarious in my financial giving in support of others. So, of course, God is on my side. But God does not join people's sides. If you've been following along in our shepherding notes recently, we were just last week in Joshua chapter 5, and there the Lord appeared to Joshua with a drawn sword, and Joshua, as any military officer would, asked him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the Lord's response to Joshua in Joshua 5.14 was simply, no. But I am the cap commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. No. I wonder how long he waited to get to the rest of the sentence. No. Whose side are you on? Ours or theirs? No. Richard Phillips says it like this in his commentary. Biblical religion is not a series of techniques for manipulating God's goodwill or harnessing God's power. Rather, it is a humble appeal for God's mercy and grace, which he has offered through the priestly ministry of his son, Jesus Christ. God does not join your side. Your only option is to join his. As one pastor once put it, God didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. The greatest need that we have as human beings is to be made right with God, to be on his side. And the only way that can happen is through trusting Jesus Christ, who has come to save sinners like you and me. And if you're not a Christian, the one thing you need to hear from this sermon is stop trying to find ways to get you yourself, to get God on your side through works of any kind. And instead, just repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. Believe that Jesus' blood covers your sin and that he is alive today, ruling as your Savior, and you will be saved. That's point number one. 
Number two, God's judgment is often surprising. Now, we don't know what was going on in the minds of Hophni and Phinehas. They had presumably heard for at least a number of years the teaching of Samuel that God was going to judge them and their father and their family line. We don't know how they responded, but we know they did not repent. We don't know if they ignored the warnings. We don't know if they thought of them often. We don't know if we, they, they feared them. We don't know if they scoffed at them. All we know for sure is they just didn't repent. Then the Lord found a brilliant way to take these two men who were normally never going to leave Shiloh and to get them right into the front lines of the battlefield and ensure that they would experience the violent end that God had promised. And just at that moment, when they probably expected to be national heroes, they were sent into eternity under the wrath of God. Now, this should provide a warning for everyone in this room and everyone beyond who is within the hearing of my voice. Don't wait to heed the warnings of the Lord. Don't let another day go by without bowing the knee in humble repentance before the Savior. The Scripture is filled with examples of people who thought their life was at its peak. They had just come into their majesty, and it was at that exact moment that God brings them into eternal judgment. If you're not a believer today, you need to know. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off for one more breath because God's timing and judgment is often surprising. Number three, God is often scoffed at in the world because of the actions of God's people. Over the next couple of chapters, we're going to see that the Philistines used the capturing of the Ark of the Covenant as a way to mock and belittle God. He became a laughingstock for a short time because of Israel's wicked belittling of God in their own hearts. Just like it says in Romans 2.24, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Christian, do you realize that the way you live reflects upon the Lord that you claim to serve? People are watching you. And I think you know that people are watching you. People are holding you to a higher standard than they hold themselves to. By, hearing, by, by bearing the name of a brother or sister in Christ, you are called to live in accordance with God's commands. And when you don't, you are always preaching a message about God that is not only untrue, but it brings reproach on the Lord and it gives cause for the unbelievers to blaspheme Him. Brothers and sisters, when the world looks at you, they should see somebody who worships God. They should see somebody who actually loves and follows God. And when they don't, what you need to do is to confess before them and acknowledge, I was in the wrong, and my actions didn't display the reality that I love and follow God. Do not be a cause for the world's blasphemy towards the Lord. Number four, God is to be worshipped, not manipulated. Imagine being the Israelites at this horrific battle. This was a terrible battle. They marched forward, and they thought, we're invincible. They thought, we have God on our side. They thought, we will win the day. They had every ounce of confidence that God was for them, so who could stand against them? The problem was, God was not there for them, at least not in the sense that he was going to defend them from a military attack that day. The Israelites viewed the Ark of the Covenant as their ace in the hole. It was like their nuclear weapon. It was the power that they assumed would defend them. It was their God in a box. But God is not in a box, and God cannot be manipulated. Nobody here is ever going to walk into an earthly war zone with an Ark of the Covenant. Obviously, you can't. It's buried in a government facility somewhere. <laughs> but do you know something? People often do this exact same thing in the way that they pray. 
Do you view the gift of prayer as a way to somehow force God into giving you what you want? Does the gift of prayer cause you to think of him as nothing more than a cosmic vending machine to provide your every desire, to give you the desires of your own heart? Every interaction that we have with the Lord is to be an interaction of humble worship. We are to consistently be reminded that he is God. We are not. And when we have genuine needs, we are not simply to cast our cares upon him so that we can get all the things we need, but to remember that he cares for us. And he'll do whatever is best for us. God is to be worshipped, not manipulated. I want to tell you that when I grew up, I grew up in a church that I perceived to be uh, very guilty of many of the things I am speaking against right now. It was a very Pentecostal, charismatic church. And in that church, we would have revival meetings, and we would have prayer gatherings, and we would have healing services. And we would pray in such a way that we were told, if God doesn't answer, it's clearly your fault. You are clearly sinning because God must answer these kinds of prayers. We can speak them into reality. But God is not in a box, and God is not to be manipulated. Number five, God hates superstition. The world that we live in is a superstitious world. It's easy for us to look back anachronistically to the ancient peoples and to say, man, those are really superstitious people. But it's still just as superstitious out there. It just shows up in some different ways. Perhaps you've heard the story that I've told you before about a man who visited our church for an outdoor gathering that we were having several years ago at an event we had uh, in Massapequa. At one point, this man said, my child needs to use the bathroom. Is it okay if they go inside? And I said, yeah, absolutely, no, no problem. And I escorted them both to the door and pointed out where the bathroom was. And he sent his child inside, but he himself would not go inside. And I said, you know, it's totally fine if, if, you, wanna, if, if you wanna go with her, that's totally cool. And he said, I can't go in there. If I go through that door, God will strike me dead. And I turned and looked him right in the eyes and I said, do you think that God has any less power to kill you right where you're standing right now? <laughs> there was a lot of superstition in that man. He was viewing that rotting, decaying church building that stood in front of him like the Philistines viewed the ark. It was scary to him because he had an inaccurate view of God. The Lord is not confined to artifacts or relics or buildings. He does not imbue physical items with some kind of magical power to save his friends or to destroy his enemies. That is why, as Christians, we have to be very careful about how we think of objects, about how we think of things, about how we view aspects of our lives like cross necklaces and pictures of Jesus and physical objects in our home or in our church. The same heart of superstition that people have that makes them idolaters is in us. The same thing that causes people to watch the Mets and wear their same unwashed, dirty pair of socks every time they play because they think somehow wearing those socks will make the Mets win is the same heart of superstition that we tend to gravitate towards things religiously. God is not with you in your car if you put a Christian bumper sticker on it. That's not how it works. God is not more likely to hear you if you walk into a church building to pray. That's not how it works. And we need to be very careful not to be superstitious. True worship is the opposite of superstition, and God hates superstition. Number six, God will never leave you or forsake you. One of the greatest things that caused my heart to rejoice as I studied this chapter over the week was just how different the new covenant is from the old. Under the old covenant, there were both 
faithful followers of God and there were wicked enemies of God. And God found ways to wipe out those wicked enemies, people like Hophni and Phinehas, who were technically under the old covenant umbrella of the Mosaic Code, but they were rebellious and they were enemies. And God, God killed them. But under the new covenant, every single person who is truly saved, every person who is actually born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, every last one has God on their side. Jesus promised his people that he would never leave us or forsake us. Unlike apostate Israel, we don't have to fear that God's going to let us go into battle or physical or spiritual battle without the guarantee that he's going to go before us. His last words to his disciples were, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Allow me to now close with reading an extended passage to you. A passage from what I perceive to be the most helpful chapter in the entire Bible when you are discouraged to read. Romans chapter 8, I'm going to read verses 31 through 39, because I want your heart to rest in the glorious grace that God has given us as a guarantee of salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. He writes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you are in Christ, then you can stand in firm confidence that by his grace, you are on God's side. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you take enemies like us, you take rebels like us, you take Philistines like us, and you save us. I thank you, Lord, that you have taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved son and i ask father god that you would by your grace continue to cause us to be aware that you are for us that you are with us and that you love us and that you will lead us lord i pray that if we are ever caught in any temptation any sin of any kind that we would not act like the israelites during this time and turn to some kind of a superstitious religious ritual but god i pray that when we are in need, we would turn to you in trust, that we would repent of our sin. We would follow after you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and that we would love you as you have loved us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.